How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 166. I'm back, Zeke. You're I, back. I can see you. I'm fa- back. Well, you're back, technically. We're back. We're back in action. I can see your face. I can touch it. You can. But. Are you going to? No. Okay. Are you disappointed by that? No, it's okay. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Mo- moving on. How are you, Jake? Disappointment. I'm okay. Yeah. I'm okay. I'm still quite fatigued, but I'm glad to be like, like outside in the world again. But life's been which good. Which has been. Yeah. It's been very good. Yeah. A lot of good things coming, coming my way, which has been awesome. That's nice to hear. Well... Jake, uh, mm. I feel like the first half of the show is going to move a little bit quicker this week. <laughs> it's um, been a dry week. Yeah. Uh, so we'll just jump straight into our film fact. Do you have a film fact for me? I do. I do. For the film Nightmare Alley. Of course, we're continuing our Del Toro discussion from last week's Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, for something a bit more contemporary, Nightmare Alley, of course, which is now on Disney+. Plus, Didn't have a very long theatrical release, mm. which is a shame. Uh, but my fact does not have to do with that necessarily. It has to do with the fact that its protagonist, of course, played by Bradley Cooper, mm-hmm. even though he's, I believe, in every scene from the beginning of the film until this point, he does not speak a word until 11 minutes and 19 seconds into the film. It's quite a while for the protagonist to yeah. not speak, a, a quiet protagonist. I, mean, I think he forgot that he wasn't doing Shape of Water anymore. He's oh, yeah, my protagonist can't speak. <laughs> what about you, Zeke? What's your fun well, fact? speaking about Bradley Cooper, or rather his character mm. and the casting there, um, Bradley Cooper was not originally pipped for this role, in fact. Oh. The original talk was to have Leo DiCaprio reprise oh. this role. Which, to be honest, as we'll discuss in the second half of the show, the themes, there's a, there's, mm. there's probably a, a method to that Shutter Island Yeah. Madness. Well, Shutter Island, I was even thinking like, oh God, what's the other one I'm thinking of? More like, he, I haven't actually seen it, but he's, um, oh my God, how am I forgetting it? The Great Gatsby performance. Mm. I haven't seen it, but it seems very flashy and showy and yeah. in that one. So, yeah. We'll discuss if Cooper was the right man for the job in the second half of the show. But Jake, mm. obviously this film being new is not on the 2018 1100, oh, sorry, the 1100 films blah, to watch blah, 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 blah. as it dated back yep. from 2018. Yep. It's too new. You're correct. But Zeke, would it, would it be on your list if you were to create one, so to speak? I had a lot of fun <laughs> with this film. Mm. Um, just a little spoiler for the second half of the show, but I would not put it on my list. Yeah, I'm kind of with you. I I think you're right, because like the lists, you want to diversify it in a lot of ways. And as much as I had a... You're right. I had a great, great time with this film. But I don't know if it ticks the right boxes to make it on that list. Mm. But we'll we'll get enough. into that. We'll get into that. I'm sure we will. So, Jake, as I alluded to in the first part of this show, <laughs> have you watched anything in the last week? Pretty much a dry spell for me. I will say, and... I was gonna say I might com- I might combine the what I've watched this week slash career updates into one thing, but it's not really a career update because I didn't even touch this film and nothing to do with it. But friend of the show Harrison Mitchell mm-hmm. just screened his uh, short film Paper Out recently, which I attended that screening, so I technically saw one short film in addition to the film of the week, mm-hmm. and I thought it was great. I thought Harry did a great job. I did, to be fair, I did read the script ages ago. So I sort of knew how it was going to play out, but in terms of, without spoiling it, there's a very, 
the the midpoint twist is very um oh that was a very morbid joke i just thought of in my head and would also spoil the film but there is a midpoint twist that's very like whoa okay audience shift here Mm. and i thought it was absolutely wonderful how the audience reacted to that shift and that that's very hard to do to sort of manipulate and control your audience to that degree where they're in hysterics for the first half and then dead silent by the by the second half of the film and um intriguing i thought it was really great but yeah i i mean i don't want to speak for harrison or the plot well it's about two um sort of these dropkick young hooligan paper boys uh who go on a coming of age journey uh i'll stand by me which i think harry watched like ten thousand times <laughs> before shooting this film so um yeah that's that's a little tease i'll give for it but mm. um maybe we'll have harry on sometime to talk about it who knows but yeah oh, it's pretty exciting stuff always mm. nice to hear local film news uh i've only really caught so i've actually caught three films in the last week including the film of the week okay um i have not going to spend a lot of time on this. I did catch at the start of the week at the outdoor telethon cinema, oh. The House of Gucci. <laughs> oh, no. Which was anything but Gucci. I went and saw it with, uh, you know, uh, Lucinda. And, yeah, look, it. we both collectively did not like the film. So mm. that was nice to have that uh, that sort of nice level. It wasn't an argument on the way back no, home? No. <laughs> no, it was a pretty... Fl- halfway through the movie, I, w- I do whisper. I'm like, the editing in this is horrific. It's Ooh, horrific. Um, uh, it has no flow. It has uh, some very strange performances, and from Jared Leto and <laughs> I told Gaga you, it feels like he just walked on set. Yep, <laughs> wasn't invited, but he just walked on set. It really does. <laughs> um, no, I, I really think the editing and the the pacing was just oh, it's a, it's a long, shocking. long, long, long movie. It takes place over like 15, 16 years, and yep. the only real barometer of that age is actually the infant child they have at the start of the film is now a teenager by the, the end of the film. <laughs> um, big miss, that film. Not a lot to like about it. Yeah, um, yeah. So, not going to dwell on that too much. I also caught Netflix's new uh, film that came out, which you talked about last week on the show, mm. The Adam Project. Ah, uh, okay. What, uh, what did you think? It was a bit of soft fun. Well, soft fun I, I, I didn't hate it um, it obviously really tugs at the father son strings uh, Ryan Reynolds is playing now what we he's just forever going to play the Deadpool character right um, the cast is, is perfectly adequate it's a perfectly adequate film I think sure uh, hits the right emotional gears it's kind of funny does it play into paper that... thin villain? Right, right. Um, I was gonna say, does it play into that sort of nostalgic, like, oh, it's like a time traveling flick, and it's like, it's like Back to the Future no. references, and it doesn't do anything like that. Not really, no. Okay. It's a very streamlined plot, to be honest. Um, its real focus is on father son relationships, mm. which is an intriguing concept because obviously you're having Ryan Reynolds, who is the same age as his dad, in this due to the time travel situation right and having yep. that dynamic so overall uh adequate easy film to watch hmm. that's probably the best way of describing it okay that um, kind of it actually almost does the exact opposite of back to the future where you have like the young kid going back in time to meet their parents at a younger age versus like having someone older meet their father at that current age sort of doing yeah. the flip which is interesting but like i said i i had no interest in this film and 
you didn't quite convince me to uh, go and watch it. It wasn't the most rave Fair review, enough. but at least it sounds like you had a decent enough time e- with it. Easy watch, yeah. Yeah, cool. Uh, I also powered through season two of Succession. Um, oh, so you done uh, done season two? Uh, season two is well in the bag now. We're into Beautiful. pushing mid-season three, so... Nice. That's about what was airing only a few months ago, so you're almost caught up. Very enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. I'm um, sure we'll have a sit down, spoiler talk about it at some point on the show. Yeah. Uh, some point down the line. But yeah, that's all I've caught in the last week. There you go. Well, like you said, pretty uh, <laughs> streamlined first half of the show. Yes. <laughs> I would so, try and watch more in the next week as well. But So should we just move into our film of the week? Huh? Might as well, Zeke. But Jake, <laughs> what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Nightmare Alley. I will ask you simple questions. You will answer in short sentences only what you believe to be absolute truth. Absolute truth. I can do that. Now, brief as you can, what is your name? Stanton Carlisle. Are you a true medium? Yes, I am. Mr. Carlisle? Doctor. Please lay down. Can you read minds? Yes, I can. Under the right circumstances. Keep your answers brief. What do I want? To be found out, same as everybody else. Are you in contact with the beyond? Well, we've had our share of snake charmers in the past. We deal with them. You don't fool people, Stan. I've given you a fortune! It's time that you delivered. When does it end? I want to know. If you displease the right people, the world closes in on you very, very fast. An ambitious carnival man with a talent for manipulating people with a few well-chosen word hooks up with a female psychiatrist who is even more dangerous than he is. Mm. Dun, dun, dun. I need to have better responses to your logline reads than, like, <laughs> I do that every week now. <laughs> like a soundboard. Yeah. Well, what I will say to that logline, which kind of threw me off a little bit because I feel like... Tell me if you believe this or believe it, or if you feel the same way. This almost feels like two different movies. And that logline feels more appropriate for, like, the second half of this movie. Okay. I can, I can believe it. Mm. I'm going to... My immediate reactions while watching the film, the first things that sprung to my head is, this is, like, in the same school of thought and structure as something like The Prestige. Um, okay. And I say that because it has that, and I'm not the biggest fan of the prestige. It, and some people really like it and some people. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think it's very good. It's a very good film. It's not, good not film. his best film though. No. Christopher but Nolan. Obviously that film isn't anything you can do. I can do either, but it's two magicians pushing the limits of their abilities and reality. And mm. it also does have that weird sort of magic surrealist undertone there, especially when they push into the Tesla stuff. Sure. Um, and this film 
does obviously, you know, we talked about magical realism last week with Pan's Labyrinth. Obviously, that hasn't left Del Toro. We no, never expected no. it to. This film's re- like way more grounded, obviously, than the film we were discussing last week, mm. but still has that undertone of realism and, or, or at least. F- honestly folklore tale yeah yeah um and what i thought was interesting because i noted the exact same thing is that this is probably his most grounded not having seen every one of his films but out of you know uh hellboy and obviously pan's labyrinth and even shape of water which you know is showing kind of a trajectory that he is getting a little more grounded with his world building but i mean that still has an element of fantasy with you know the fish monster mm-hmm. but then here i think you're right this is probably his most grounded looking film in terms of the world building yeah. Even though there are elements of, you know, trickery and mind reading and magic and, and, and the fairy tale stuff, especially from the look of the actual carnival. And I thought that was really clever is, is making it a grounded world, but then having, you know, when he first walks into that little horror house thing and you've got these devil faces and are moving around and the skeletons and, and all of that. Um, I, mean, I thought that a, was a nice way to acknowledge that. There's a great emphasis on instead of... Um is is sort of human dysmorphia and mm. um you know to to coin a, a film that sort of does actually particularly do its horror through that sort of human dysmorphia that's midsummer really i mean okay yeah. there's there's definitely elements of the the horror and stuff comes through that weird sort of balance of magic magic surrealism and 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 the horror of the unknown and mm. body disfigurement and, and that sort of such stuff so this film also doesn't shy away from any of those sort of themes and stuff, but definitely feels more fictionalised than Midsummer. Um, obviously, is more like folklore, right. like you're reading a, a dark novel, um, which is in tune with his directorial style, as we were talking last week. But yeah, you're right. It's still recognisable, for yeah, sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, I had a lot of fun with this film, but yeah, the, the films that I was springing to mind, especially the first half, was this is The Prestige, basically. He's... He's basically sort of Hugh, Hugh Jackman's character where he's willing to risk life and limb to sort of acquire the skills, even if they're not ethically right. Mm. Um, and there was that element in there. That was the one that really stuck out for me, that that sort of feeling and vibe. But I'm sure there's a few other... Like, it's always got that, that uh, uh, Tim Burton dark undertone there, the yeah. creepy carnival-esque. Well, it, the only film I actually even kind of compared it to in any way, and this has stylistically nothing in, in common, but I was thinking of Boogie Nights in a way, mostly for the structure of, like, the rise and fall of... It's a very bizarre example. <laughs> um, and again, stylistically not that relevant, but in terms of the journey we go on, because again, for me, it just felt like two very different... Films it almost feels yeah. like the first hour is an origin story, and then the actual you know the logline that you read where you know he's has this skill set with like the devil's tongue, and then he meets the psychiatrist and who could be more dangerous than him. That only applies after the first hour of the film. True, I I think if if anything though, I think the film is is just watching the descent of someone go into madness mm. and um, confront their actions and. Um, that's sort of the, the film. I, I think the film's pretty coherent and stands by itself. Uh, I just think it's quite elongated in the storytelling. And it's not sure, a bad thing because yeah. the film doesn't drag, I think, at any real stage. It's very stimulating and interesting and intriguing mm. 
first hour keeps you intrigued because you want to understand the the psychology that is being used in order to make this carny trick work. <laughs> yeah, um, which is quite fascinating. And well, you have you have a, someone who comes into this world very mysterious. You know, at this point, we don't know this person's name. There's a very vague introduction about him. You know, burning a body and setting a house on fire, and even that imagery again to what we're talking about. Um, sort of this empty house in the middle of this empty field that, you know, it's oh, like it's showing like he's, he's a lone wolf or, or, um, that, that kind of thing. But it's like that, why would that, we could break it down. Why is that house in the middle of this giant field? And it's like, well, it's all in service of this semi grounded world, but it's got that Del Toro touch to it yeah, where absolutely. it's quite beautiful and, and scary all at once. But other than that, and again, that's very vague. This is a mystery person. We don't know what their motivation is, what their goal is, and to an extent, you can almost assume that that Stan himself doesn't really know until he stumbles across this across this carnival mm. and starts to sort of gel in. And I thought, okay, this is going to be more of a story of like identity and like he's finding his people amongst like these like you know this group of freaks at a carnival. Um, but it ends up feeling more, and again, the rise and fall of he ends up becoming a con man. And really nothing yeah. more than that. A violent, dirty con man. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. I think for the most part, it's it's quite strange. When we, you know, we're talking about all the theory and underpinnings and stuff. And mm. this film is incredibly streamlined and mm. very easy to follow. Um, yeah. Which is to its benefit because it has a lot of ground to cover in two and a half hours. Um, and I think, yeah. I just, to me, it wouldn't surprise me if, um, there are a couple of things that make it overtly a Del Toro piece, like the not shying away from direct violence or body horror and yeah, such, like with yeah. the babies that Defoe presents and such, but... Well, even just the, the, the running the guy over and the fact that, like, the guy... What is with Del Toro, like, clipping people's noses inside their faces? <laughs> like, I was like, oh, he's getting punched. Like, that's, oh my God, his nose is missing. <laughs> Why is it happening in multiple films from Del Toro? This man likes his violence. But but to that point, it's one of those things you kind of forget. It's not the first thing you think of yeah. with Del Toro is he, the violence. But it's all it's kind of almost always there in the same way that Tarantino, like we joke about like feet and like sort of the, the, the type of dialogue he creates is so unique to his own films. But almost all of them have an extreme level of violence as well. And I always forgot that those two directors kind of share that yeah. Almost like a secondary trait <laughs> for most of their films. But yeah, no, you're right. It doesn't shy away from that violence. And it, it becomes shocking as well because mm. it's a story that for a lot of it, again, that first hour where he's, you know, sort of making friends for these other carnies and what, what he's really doing is sort of slowly developing enough tricks from each of them that he takes into his own, you know, business mm. when he runs away with... um. Oh, what's her name? I'll grab with Molly, you know, over the next two years. Yeah. And it felt to me a bit like, I was like, it's, it's almost like an open world game where there's a lot of side mission B stories going on. Mm. And it, and I kind of didn't know what to focus on at first. Like he's talking to Willem Dafoe and helping with like the geek. And then you have him obviously chasing Molly like romantically, but like between all of these different side missions, quote unquote, <laughs> that he keeps bouncing between, I almost didn't know what to focus on until you realize. But I think you hit the nail on the head. He was just acquiring resources. Exactly. He sort of took a bit from each table 
and turned it into his own thing, which, you know, it's a bit of a capitalistic journey there. I don't think that's the important part. Obviously, he does get ripped off at the end financially. Mm. You know, it all ends up being for nothing in that sense. Um, but yeah, it's a downward spiral, and it's someone who, again, we don't know much about him when we first meet him, Stan. Mm. And it, it becomes very clear throughout the film that he does not like being... As much as he's like a mind reader, and he reads people and he puts a mirror to their faces, and he has all of these tricks and sorcery to do so, he does not want to be read back. And that's why mm. he's super freaked out when Kate Blanchett starts sort of cornering him, or even when the, the lie detector comes out. That's a great scene where he's he almost has to sort of jump over the hurdle of like the technical accuracy of a lie detector at the time. Um, I just thought that stuff was all really mm. interesting, the secrecy behind his character. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What do you think of the camera work? It's interesting. I mean, his camera work is always great. I felt like the editing at times would almost, like, cut too soon. Like, I could always see the camera start to move in a really interesting way, and then it would just sort of cut, and it breaks the 30-degree rule. Where there was uh, this one scene, I think it's when, and I'll get his name really quickly, um, when Ron Perlman's, oh, it's Bruno, when Bruno comes up and he's basically like, you know, I promised her dad to protect her and I'll beat the mm-hmm. crap out of you. I think it's that scene when he's, like, doing up the car and he starts walking up and I can see the camera, like, rotate to do something interesting and then it just sort of cuts to a slightly different angle mm-hmm. and it kept throwing me off a little bit. Did you find that at all? Or No. No, 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 but I think you were more shortly in tune to it there. Yeah, well, I just, I noticed because we talked about the camera so much last week in the Del Toro's director's corner and how like in your know, Pacific Rim it's being a lot more grounded as sort of an audience view of these giant you know mech monsters or yeah. robots or whatever um, again that was you talking about that one I haven't seen that film yet but then we talk about Pan's Labyrinth how the camera's like doing all sorts of crazy things it's going inside like the uterus and mm. then it goes up the mountain and it comes back through the window and um, I felt like the editing was almost disrupting the camera from being able to do that. And it's not to say that there aren't times where the camera does, you know, when, when um, obviously he's all cut up and bruised when he's mm. had that altercation with Kate Blanchett and he's running down the hallway, leaving the bloody marks in the wall. Like, that's a great little Oh, with the camera track. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, th- there's moments in it where it's like, oh, that's cool. Like, it kind of sinks in there. But I personally found the editing be a little invasive at times with Intriguing. that. Intriguing, yeah. I, I yeah. can't say it really got... I, didn't pick up too much in the editing. I think maybe I might have been distracted a lot by the camera and the use of sure. low-key lighting in particular. And, mm. um, definitely the Burton aesthetic feels like there's a Burton sort of undertone in the, the dark. I, def- I got that vibe when they were at the snow maze. Oh, snow that's has, a great location. Um, yeah. With uh, Grindel and Stanton. Is it Stanton? Um, the character. Yeah, Cooper's character. As, as a, oh, Cooper, oh um, yeah, I've just called him Stan. It's yeah. Stanton, yeah. Yeah. So Stan for short. <laughs> um, yeah. Look, what are your thoughts on like the ensemble cast? Because it, it they they sort of I feel like they get plenty to do for the most part. Yeah, it's it's definitely I could definitely see how one point of saying this is definitely two films is how the ensemble is seemingly just thrown out in the second. Yeah, part of the film. yeah. They get one. Uh, resurgent scene when you know Molly and a few of them, them yeah the, come back, the... but, but it, Defoe... that does feel awkward, doesn't it? That scene, like oh, you actually kind of feel the awkward of like, oh my god, these characters are back, and they mm. almost feel unwelcomed in a lot of ways. Oh yeah, so I think it actually works really well for that sense. But you're right, like that's part of the reason is like it's such a different world 
that Stan and Molly have entered into now. Yep. And I actually felt it the other way around where, like, I'm watching it being like, when's Kate Blanchett going to show up? It's been an hour. And then her being introduced was like me being ripped away from the, the carny world, so to speak. So I definitely felt that shift. Um, but yeah, but prior to that, like even Willem Dafoe, like I remember hearing, this was sort of during the Oscar buzz talk, like, oh, he doesn't really get to do much. He's kind of like Bradley Cooper in Licorice Pizza. I didn't agree. I thought he had plenty. Yeah. He had a big role in it, actually. Well, Dave, David Stratham, too. Oh, yeah. No. Huge role. Big like, role. As that sort of mentor with the... I think I think the funny thing about this film is it's still a very well put together film, but it does... And obviously it's based off a, a novella. Um, okay, I didn't know that, actually. Yeah. And there was a 1947 oh, adaption for it. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think... I think Oh, no, you're right. Yeah, look at that. Being the second feature adaption of Graham's novel following. Yeah. Ah, look at that. There you go. So... I'm out of it. I'm out of the loop. Um, <laughs> is a very interesting... I, I, I'm a big fan of the first part of this film in particular. The, yeah. The use of... But, um, you know, I am definitely think this is a Burton meets Del Toro. Like, Del Toro is still very much in there. The fact that rain... When the rain hits, it hits hard. It doesn't have a lot of sprinkle. Yeah. Yep. It's always like extreme weather conditions. Um, uh, it's it's an uncomfortable uh, film, but it's a very in the sense of, of the characters and the subject matter. But the the story is coherent and quite honestly quite simple to follow. It's not it doesn't test you or, or make you intri- at least not intrigued in terms of the story point to point. It makes mm. you more intrigued in the hidden notions and ideas of the characters and what they're actually thinking. Yeah. You know, as someone, as we're following, you know, Stanton through the, the story, we don't even really know his relationship with his father. Like that, yeah. that, that, well, that's like sort of a driving question constantly. Yeah. Throughout the film. We know, we know he doesn't like him. Um, and we're assuming he's killed him, but to see that scene play out the way it does, mm. when it does, we're, to see the sort of epilogue of, of <laughs> this film is, is quite uh, fascinating. Yeah. It's, I, I think it pays off nicely. Mm. I'm wondering if it almost would have worked as like a reveal earlier in the film, but I guess, I, I guess it's meant to be played sort of alongside that. You're right, that descent to madness where by the end he is sort of cackling, laughing at the, mm. at the fate that he's almost a very cyclical fate that the he's irony. coming around on. Yeah. yeah. That's a great moment. Like, it's not my highlight scene, but I wanted to mention, like, that last shot of Bradley Cooper. Fantastic. So, it just, yeah. It's like his apocalypse now moment. <laughs> exactly. That's great. Between that and Licorice Pizza, he's had some great roles yeah, in the last year. Yeah, in the last year. I want to mention quickly, um, I, we talked a little bit about Molly, but I kind of, like, first off, I sort of compared it to, like, the, um, the Sally Hawkins Shape of Water perform- uh, performance because she's so quiet initially. Mm. And I made that comment about how Bradley Cooper doesn't talk for 11 minutes in the film. I think she goes a lot longer without talking as well. Sort of very mousy at first. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I wonder, because like you said, he was meant to be Leonardo DiCaprio mm-hmm. initially. I'm like, I wonder if that was meant to be Sally Hawkins first and then she couldn't do it for whatever reason. That might, That's my little mini prediction. Well, what did you think of the casting of the character of Molly? Of Molly? Yeah. yeah. No, I think she's great, and I always, I, I always feel like she's, I don't think she's underrated. 
I always kind of like, oh, yeah, like, she's in this. Oh, yeah, she's in that. And, yeah, I think she's great in it. And it's cool that she represents that she's almost, like, the first person to really buy into Stan's sort of silver tongue. Mm. Um, obviously, he kind of has to convince the whole, you know, group of carnies that initially when he, you know, convinces the police officer and yeah. um, goes through that whole shit. And that's sort of the big turn for her of, like, basically trusting him and being like, maybe we can go away. Mm-hmm. Um, but then almost immediately, and I say immediately in the sense that we jump ahead two years in a flash, it's probably a lot of development in that And the time. dynamics already changed. It's immediately changed where he's clearly very selfish and he spent all this time trying to convince her that she's better than this place, but then she ends up being sort of a nameless assistant who gets yelled at between shows. <laughs> she, uh, she gets um, duped by another Matt Smith yeah <laughs> last night so horrible again oh no there you go the um yeah i like that she sort of and it eventually has that turn when she's going to put on the wig and the dress and part of this big manipulation game of like being like the revived dead wife and that she just she keeps being unable to go with it yeah just because of the morality behind that and i like that eventually bradley cooper's silver tongue just slowly fades and fades and fades and but by the time that she cracks and that's it she slaps him walks away and we don't i don't think we see her again no first of film that's a cool little exit right there but from that point on he's just like failing constantly with every other interaction it's a spiral a rap more rapid spiral into madness yeah for sure so no i think she really represents that quite well but like i said she's sorry Oh, sorry. I was I was just gonna say the one of the big things I I've always, I'm a big fan of Del Toro is sort of his use of even like visual irony or visual coding. Okay. Or, yeah. Where just little things like that foreshadow like Stanton or Cooper's fate um, with the fact that when he's running away after he's had his ear shot off by Blanchett, yeah, yep. and he has to hide in a train cart. What does he hide it? He hides in a chicken coop oh yeah train car. you're just like there's some really clever like a little peppered uh you know like yeah foreshadowing there yeah just yeah you're like like irony visual irony beats the yeah. the thing that i noticed as well visually i probably could have mentioned this earlier but the fact that we have those moments where he's you know it's dark and it's raining very you know del toro sort of look mm. uh is when there is an, an aura of mystery and this is in the, the first half of the film when he hasn't quite mastered the the silver ton yet but i liked how that was juxtaposed by like a clear you know bright sunny day when mm-hmm. he's helping i think it's xena doing the the initial um reading and he kind of comes in and out from like the 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 clear window on the floor and helping her sort of mm-hmm. muster the show and convince the crowd of of you know what she's saying and i just like that visual disparity of like when it's night and gloomy and rainy is when we're in this aura of mystery and then when he's like in on the magic so to speak it's nice and bright and clear we can yeah. see that but then it juxtaposes again later that night when pete does the reading of his watch and associates it with the dad and that he stole it and even though it is a broad reading but we're back in nighttime it's raining and it generally freaks him out yeah um so in terms of the visual storytelling i like that as well that's quite in there but do you yeah. have anything else you'd like to touch on buddy um, let's see. Cause I, it's funny. Cause like I said, this is a big film, but it really comes down to just a man who's reading others and does not want to be read. Yeah. He's and, a man who likes mm. having power and control. And yeah. 
doesn't like it when he loses it, really. It's a, <laughs> it's actually a very easy film to follow. Yeah. And it's yeah. quite enjoyable, it, despite its uh, runtime. You know, I always feel like in a lot of ways it, it sits on that category of, like, those long films that are very easy to interpret, like Shawshank Redemption that's nearly three hours long. And you're like, yeah. I'm following this point for point very coherently. And well, yeah. I guess it's about letting the Green Mile. Breathe, yeah. Oh, Green Mile's excellent. We did, yeah, we did that. What was it, a year ago? Yes. Yeah, crazy. I guess the only other character I feel like we could touch on is uh, Kate Blanchett's character because, I mean, again, that's where the logline comes from in terms of a plot. But it's like she has her own level of deviousness in the sense that they're sort of working together basically to con these people. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at the end of the day, she's still the one that turned the tables on on him, mm. on Stan, and obviously rip him off financially, but then to do the recording and call the police and sort of have that plant all there. Um, so I, I really did like that relationship. Actually, there's a bit of this as well with with her and Tony Collette, who, of course, is great, she's great and everything, where there's a bit of a flirtation going on there, mm-hmm. especially this first thing. And, you know, we were looking at the IMDb trivia earlier. They were talking about how Bradley Cooper does... He's, fully nude in that scene i'm pretty sure you can you know see his dick <laughs> i didn't rewind to double check but i was like oh if you actually look like through the the bathtub and then that's tony collette's first day there as well and you know they start having a bit of a fling almost immediately this is like mm. 15 minutes into the film so there's a bit of a a romantic streak that bradley cooper's character yeah. has in terms of i guess convincing people or being charming to that extent mm. but yeah i definitely like the relationships there but yeah well, see, do you have a highlight scene for Nightmare Alley? I have to say, I'm a big fan of that. Uh, when uh, the in the first uh, first to almost we're about to transition into the second half of the the film, mm. um, the Defoe Stanton and Geek scene um, that leads to Defoe's dialogue. Oh yeah, um, very good foreshadowing. Um, great performance from Defoe. Gives you a little bit of that uh, lighthouse vibe. Um, <laughs> And yeah, it's a, it's a really powerful, um, daunting scene for which sort of pretty much at that point I was like, oh, I wonder where this film is going to end. And to be right, honest, yeah. that in complement with the last shot, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, that is one thing we were talking about before we started recording. Is is we both sort of predicted you predicted it way earlier than I did. The fact that it was going to have that full circle reveal. Um, I don't like to predict films ahead of time, but like by the end, I was like, oh, okay, I, I feel like that's the logical place to, to end it, that descent to madness. Mm-hmm. But um, no, that is a great scene. The one that I, and I've already technically mentioned it, but again, that I wanted to give a shout out to the lie detector scene, um, specifically because again, like that connotation of, of it being sort of this technological thing where you have these people who are so determined to essentially call them out. Mm-hmm. They want to put him in that chair and, tell him to get the hell out because he's you know he's bluffing and to have the audience in that position knowing in that position and knowing that bradley cooper could very well fail at this task yeah and it starts to fail yeah and but not only is he unable to uh essentially trick the lie detector in and itself instead of relying on that technological side he uses the emotion and like his you know performance to essentially convince those people like no 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 like I, I do have these, like, powers, and I can read, and I can, you know, the ghostly figure Almost here. Almost like and, snapping into character. Yeah, exactly. And the fact that he's able to sort of emotionally manipulate them, despite what the lie... He convinces them that the lie detector doesn't work. Mm. That's what he does. 
And I just felt like, in terms of like a power shift, like that's such a great singular scene. And apparently it was the last scene they shot before they had to go into a COVID isolation lockdown. They had to wait seven months to continue shooting. Fun times. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Nightmare, is, Nightmare Alley mm. is currently out on Disney+. Plus. Yes, it is. And I was at the store yesterday, already out on DVD and Blu-ray. Wow. So jump on it. Great film. Well, speaking of streaming platforms, DVDs and, well, cinemas, what's new to cinemas and streaming platforms this week? Ah, uh, not a lot. A lot of nabbers on this list <laughs> at the moment. Um, coming to binge this week, you do have Lin-Manuel Miranda's In the Heights, which I feel like is already on Disney+. Plus. I think so. Yeah, but if you only have binge... Well, there we go. You have binge and Disney+, Plus now. Yeah, my Disney+, Plus, but, you know, hey, this is what it is. Oh, well, should we mention that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you had to use my account... On Disney Plus, because yours was child locked. <laughs> I was child locked, like a big boy. I have no idea why mm. you couldn't watch MA or R films. It's so funny. It's so bad. I I go into my profile. I think I went last night just to check the time. I was like, bloody hell, two and a half hours. But then I saw it was already like mostly watched, and I was like, ah, oh, so you must have snuck onto my account. <laughs> this is correct. You uh, are correct. Yeah. Hey, fair enough. You got to do what you got to do. Yep. To get the job done. I appreciate it. Commitment to the podcast. Exactly. Now, if you do have binge and you're feeling a bit more of a documentary, then boy, howdy, you got a lot of documentaries coming your way. Just this week alone, you have The Primary Instinct, The Super Bob Einstein Movie, Secrets of Catsworth, Breaking Habits, Raising Bertie, and Life After Flash, which in reference to Flash Gordon. Uh, so those are all documentaries coming to binge this week. So jump on that hat. Coming to Netflix this week, you have the second season of Bridgerton, which I know some people out there like Bridgerton. I'm not one of those people. <laughs> it's okay. Watched it a very long time ago with the wrong company and we'll never watch it again. Oh, oh no. That, that's okay. <laughs> you don't have to. I have the right company now. Ah, that's good. Oh, good. Very good. Maybe you can jump back in for that reason. You also have the first two seasons of Redfern now, as well as its TV movie, Promise Me. And coming to Prime this week, you've got Lizzo's Watch Out for the Big Girls. Girls spent G-R-R-R-L-S, which covers the global superstar as she searches for confident, badass women to join their world tour to twerk it out on stage. Uh, I don't know if I'm quite the audience for this, but I'm sure I'm sure it does have its its audience. Um, you also got Fighting With My Family, the Florence Pugh film, which we covered many, many moons ago. 156 episodes ago. Yeah, something like that. It was, it was a while ago. Uh, it Was it... I think we were just in second digits. So episode 11 or 12 or something very early on. And this technically came out last week, but I forgot to mention it, so I'll mention it here. You have Deep Water, which also comes to Prime, which is an erotic thriller starring Amadiamas and Ben Affleck. I've seen a lot of like trailers pop up for it. Spicy. I don't know if it looks... I don't know if it's good or not, but... I hey. can't tell. <laughs> exactly, I can't tell. Now, coming to cinemas, you do have Nowhere Special which is a 35-year-old window cleaner with only a few months left to live, go on a journey to find the perfect family to take care of his three-year-old son. You also have River, which is a musical odyssey that explores the relationship between humans and rivers. Sounds very similar to Koya Nascotsi mm-hmm. when I read that, but um, it, might, it might be up my alley. It's only about 80 minutes long as well, I think. And finally, you have DreamWorks' The Bad Guys, which these notorious criminals, Mr. Wolf, Mr. Snake, Mr. Piranha, Mr. Shark, and Ms. Tarantula. you got to have your one token female animal in there, like Gloria. From- <laughs> she's got to be a Ms. too. Yeah, got exactly. to divorce her. Yeah. Actually, you know, good. I reckon she's going to be Mrs. by the end of the film. <laughs> I reckon that's going to be the twist, Ms. Tarantula. 
Um, they finally get caught, and to avoid a prison sentence, the animal outlaws must pull off their most challenging con yet, becoming modern civilians. Sounds tough. Now, that's technically not out yet, but it does preview at Hoyts from Sunday the 27th. So you've got a whole week, everyone, to prepare. Book your tickets. Gotta lock it in. Gotta lock it in. Get ready. You have no chance. Yeah. I know. You've you got plenty of chance, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you wait until the 27th. Your chances well, are less. Jake. <laughs> We're not going to be catching any of those next week on the show, are we? No. You don't want to watch the bad guys? No. No? No. Not into and, and I'm not, not into the bad guys. Oh, no, fair I'm enough. Sorry. But, Jake, what are we watching? <laughs> Next week on the show, we're watching Boyhood. This cinematic event chronicles the life of a boy from ages 6 through to age 18, filmed in real time over the course of 12 years. Boyhood, Zeke. Spicy. What, what, what's your opinion on Boyhood? Do, do Big you, fan of Do you like this film? Oh, I, 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 yeah. I do quite like this yeah, film. That's I good. That's, that's good. good. I will be splooging all over it next oh, week. Oh my goodness me. Well, the reason we're doing this, it's, it might seem like an odd time to do Boyhood, mm-hmm. sort of out of the blue, but our little... Uh, motivation so to speak is that we we did nine week breaks between before before sunrise before sunset and before midnight of course richard linklater's epic trilogy spanning love story decade spanning love story i should say yep um it's been another nine weeks and i was like you know what maybe we should do another linklater film and just keep the they, did, they just make you feel good don't they i know they're really good so boyhood technically actually does come out after all three of those films so chronologically yeah. speaking, we're in the correct order. There you go. We're in the right direction. So uh, I'm excited to talk about Boy. I mean, I, I, I mean, I saw this yeah forever ago as well. But um, excited to talk about it. Very excited to continue the uh, the Hawkening. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's the other chain that links all four of these films. That's a good point. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Boyhood. Boy, howdy. Gee golly, gee golly willikers. <laughs>